0: Well, it's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. The phone lines are open. I'm ready and eager to answer your Jewish-related questions.
1: It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and culture and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the line of fire. This is a day when we will answer your Jewish-related questions So a question about Jewish tradition or Judaism or practice, a question about Jewish background to the New Testament, a question about a Messianic prophecy, question about Hebrew language, question about Israel today. Those questions are kosher on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, 866-348-7884. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. And we're going to open up the scriptures And look at some very important words spoken by Jesus, Yeshua, in Matthew, the fifth chapter, where he says he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. What exactly did he mean by that? We could spend many an hour on that particular subject, but today we're going to give it some focused minutes along the way. 866-34-TRUTH. Before we get into that, before we take your calls— I spotted a comment on our Ask Dr. Brown YouTube page today. Now, thousands of comments come in. or all tens of thousands of comments, I guess, over the years, many hundreds of thousands of comments. But it's the rarest of rare that I respond personally. Sometimes a team member will respond to the comments every so often. It's rare. It's very rare. I respond. But I saw this one today and I thought, I, I got to respond personally. So this was Matthew Earlier today, Dr. Brown, today is my birthday, and I have one wish. Do not ever stop answering and debating. For I encountered Jesus breaking me out of prison, 10 years later, I was ungrateful like an Israelite, got shaken by Tovia Singer, heard you, and have been strong in my faith since. You have a gift. Praise God. And I responded, Matthew, thank God for his faithfulness. I normally don't respond to comments here on YouTube, but I just saw yours and had to say, fear not, by God's grace, it is my intent never to stop answering and debating. Truth will triumph. So uh, Matthew referenced a counter-missionary rabbi who has undermined the faith of some, and it's been our privilege over the years to help people recover faith that have lost faith because of this counter-missionary. And, of course, we debated many years ago in the early 1990s, and he's refused to debate me ever since. We give the real reasons for that on our YouTube channel as well. So if you just search for Brown and Singer, you'll get that information. But by God's grace, I have no intent to back down. It's, it's like breathing to me. It's, when I see error, I confront it. When I see people speaking words of deception, we do our best to expose. We do our best to present the truth and glorify the Lord and, and back up everything we say with scripture truth. Why should you believe me? Maybe you respect me. Maybe you think I'm smart, I'm educated, whatever. Plenty of smarter people, more educated people. But why should you believe me unless I'm accurately representing what God's word says and living as a witness to that? eight, six, six, three, four truth. But we could use your help. The problem is not my will and the will of our team. The problem is not our ability to speak. The problem is that like every group, individual family, ministry, organization, we have limited resources. And we know there are many of you who believe in what we're doing. What I'm asking you to do is help amplify my voice You know, we have amazing open doors to get the gospel out in Israel, in Hebrew. All we need is your help and support to do it. We have the ability to expand onto more radio stations across America or to to take more time for Jewish outreach in particular. But we just need your help to do it. You say, well, God supplies. Yes, but he supplies through people just like he works through me and he works through you. We're people. I have to, to spend the hours and the years of research and writing and and sharpening arguments and and and, and getting stretched and, and pushing and it's late at night and you're tired. It's like, keep pushing. So he works through us. It's our privilege. He works through, he wants to work through your finances. You'll be blessed and you'll help us reach Jewish people with the gospel. So I'm giving you a direct challenge, a loving challenge, a request, stand with us, turn your finances into souls by standing with us, make an eternal investment. Go to our website now, AskDrBrown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. As soon as you have a break and you can do it. Don't do it while driving. As soon as you have a break, AskDrBrown.org. Click on Donate. Become a torchbearer. First, read all the benefits. And we start just by blessing you with a beautiful Tree of Life Bible. But read all the benefits that come your way as a torchbearer. And the greatest, the greatest is that forever you'll see the results of your labor in heaven. All right, before I go to the phones and before we open up Matthew uh, let, me, let me read you something else that was sent to us. This was a few years ago or some months back from Curtis. And this got my attention as well. God bless you, Dr. Brown. You have been such a blessing to me. And as I once told you on your show, it was your materials that helped me when my dearest friend was terminally ill with cancer. And in deep doubt her faith, about her faith because of Tovia Singer, thank you with all my heart. Here again. Someone comes to steal faith. Someone comes with words, not of life, but of death and deception. And we are able through the truth of the gospel to help someone whose friend is terminally ill and battling with doubt because of seeds lies that were sown into their hearts and minds by God's grace. We were able to address here. I just looked for a couple other examples. I had remembered some that we had filed away. Let me just share this while I'm mentioning this and, and, you're helping us help these people. You're helping us be on the front lines. You're helping us grow our team so we can spend more time getting our resources out to more people. That's why I can ask you boldly. I know you'll be blessed. I know we're doing God's work. And I know this doesn't put a dime in our pockets. It puts truth in the hands of people. Listen, listen to this testimony. Dr. Brown, if you are reading, and in case you are interested, Back in 1995, a friend from Chicago told me about the debate. Uh, This is a a debate three years previous. And he told me that you clearly, quote, won this debate. This is with Rabbi Tovia Singer. Remember, he's refused to debate me ever since. I say, let's debate every day. I'm happy to. I went to a talk in Dallas where Tovia was. Afterwards, he hung out to talk to folks. I straight up asked him, so you had a debate with Dr. Michael Brown? He interjected and said it was a radio talk show, not a debate. Then I simply asked, well, what happened? He said the following, the Lord God as my witness. That was a long time ago. I was 28 years old. I was young. Then then looked at me smiling, throws his hands up and shrugs his shoulders. and That was it. I heard the debate later that year and figured out why he responded that way. To me, that was body language admission. Okay, okay. I lost. That's this person's testimony. I can't, I can't. Verify it one way or the other. Uh, obviously, he's quite sincere in sharing it. But we do have that old debate. And we do have the fact that he's refused to debate me ever since. That, that's meaningful. One, one more. One more. spot. We've got plenty of these, but one more. Uh, I have to say, I find you quite fascinating. So this is from a Jewish man. Just posted today in response to our Wednesday night Jewish outreach show, Real Messiah. And we need your help if we're going to continue that reaching out in New York City. I have to say, I find you quite fascinating. I'm not a follower of Jesus and never will be. May the Lord change that. He says, but I do think you are successful because you're knowledgeable and have outstanding debating skills. Now, this is from a non-believing Jew. However, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is a book of interpretation and multiple opinions can be derived. That is why there are hundreds of Christian Bibles, but why is there only one Torah? Well, easy answer to that. I'll come back to it. Anyway, I was impressed on your take on Isaiah 53, but found your explanation on Isaiah seven fourteen and Isaiah 9, 6 week. But I do find you fascinating. Ian, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Maybe you're tuning in right now. By all means, give us a call and tell us why you find fault with my interpretation of those other passages. And, and by the way, there's only one Bible, just like there's only one Torah, but there are multiple Christian translations, just like there are multiple Jewish translations. There are multiple Aramaic Targums in the ancient world. There are multiple ancient Jewish Greek translations, and there are multiple English Jewish translations today. So no big deal there. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to the phones. We start with Lewis in Virginia. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Thank you, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. I've got a question a friend of mine And uh, myself went through the book of Jonah just to just to learn, and I noticed some um, striking similarities to the first chapter of Jonah and the story of Jesus um, and His disciples in the boat with the um, storm on the sea, and Jesus calming the storm. And what really stood out to me was when Jesus was asleep, as well. It says in Jonah that He was asleep, which just struck me as odd. But I was wondering. What is maybe a Jewish take on that? And then is there any significant to that because Jesus also quotes specifically of Jonah being in the fish, uh, fish's belly just as Jesus would be in the fish's belly?
0: Yeah. Uh, first, uh, I really like the fact that you're looking into the text deeply and finding these parallels. By the way, the Hebrew, when it says Jonah was in a sleep, it's a deep sleep. In Hebrew, it's tardemah which is the same word used in Genesis 2 when God puts Adam into a deep sleep. So he was, he was really sleeping and obviously emotionally wrought from what he was doing. Of course, there are two totally different accounts. In, in one case, the storm sent by God in judgment on Jonah, and it's only when he's thrown overboard that the storm stops. And then the, the sailors on the boat, the pagan sailors, realize, whoa, Jonah's God is the real God. We better worship him. Uh, in, in the accounts with Jesus in the boat, in the storm, in, in different chapters in the Gospels, obviously it's just speaking of the chaos of, of the sea and of Jesus calming that, uh, both, uh, both being asleep, etc. I, I look at more as just a very interesting parallel and, and a very interesting scene, but with people living on the Mediterranean Sea and living by the Sea of Galilee and things like that, you're definitely going to have boat stories. You're definitely going to have stories of, of storms and of someone asleep sleep in the boat and things. So I'm not going to look for more uh, imagery than that. But as far as a Jewish take on that, Lewis, I'm, I'm not aware of any unique Jewish insights into that, uh, The the reflections on Jonah in Jewish circles are not radically different from any reflections in Christian circles, but I'm not myself aware of, of a special Jewish insight that would, wow, open that up with a further insight. So there are interesting traditions, Jewish traditions about Jonah, but nothing that jumps at me as a special insight there. If I spot one later, I'll let you know, but thank you, sir. Great question.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. It's Thursday Jewish Thursday. Boy, next Thursday Jewish Thursday, I'll be in Israel, God willing, with our tour group. I am so psyched about this. Really looking forward to it. If you are one of the folks with us on this tour, wonderful. But if, if you weren't able to come this year, we are ready looking for dates for next year. This be the first time I've done it two consecutive years, but we feel good about it. And and the way we're laying everything out and we believe it's going to be a tremendous blessing to the folks. So eight, six, six, three, four truth. If you have a Jewish related call, uh, interesting, tradition, Jewish tradition, that in, in Jonah, the first chapter, where it says that the sailors cried out each to his own God. Rashi, foremost Jewish commentator, lived 1040 to 1105. He says that they were from all the 70 nations and each crying out to their respective gods. So that would make the ship pretty big ship, but of course, there's, there's no actual evidence for that. eight six six three for truth, let us go to uh, Toronto. Jeff, welcome to the Line of Fire.
3: Oh, hey, Doctor, how you doing?
0: Doing well, thank you.
3: Uh, God bless. Thank you for all the all the teaching. It's been really really helpful. Um, I'm glad. I have a. I have a. Uh, first of all, first off, I just want to say I, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's my Savior, my Messiah. I believe in the atonement. Um, uh, Christian all my life and I'm uh, just looking to learn a bit more, really. Um, yeah. Wh- wh- one thing that kind of confuses me a bit, um, and it doesn't change anything, but it just kind of confuses me a bit, is how it's written, it's written that the Messiah will be of the lineage of David. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that Joseph was um, of the lineage of David. I just get a little bit confused because Joseph, for some reason in my mind, doesn't seem like the earthly father of Jesus, you know? So I, I don't get the correlation of how, um, how that connects to the lineage of David.
0: Yeah, so the first thing is that Joseph is in the royal line from David, and that's what Matthew is, is telling us that the one raised as a son by Joseph, and he's the legitimate earthly parent, again, it's a virgin birth, it's not under normal law, was of the royal line of David. But I believe you can make an excellent argument that Yeshua's mother, Miriam, Mary, was also of the line of David, and that his physical descent goes through Mary. You can make that argument potentially from Luke's Gospel, the third chapter. It, it just uh, requires reading it a little differently than you might be used to reading it, but I believe it's a legitimate way to do it. There are other early traditions that speak of Miriam being of the line of David. So as I understand it, that his physical descent as a human being comes through his mother, Miriam, and therefore if she was of the line of David— he would be a physical descendant of David. As to the fact that he is greater than David, that's because he is not just a human being. He is son of God and son of Mary. So in that respect, he can be the son of David and greater than David. If he had an earthly mother and father, then he would be just a descendant of David, no matter how great he was, less than David, because he's merely a descendant of his. But instead, okay. he is greater than David to the fact to the point that David can call him Lord or Master because he's both son and greater than. So that's the way I understand it. And there are examples in the Hebrew Bible of lineage being traced through a woman, and this would be the okay. case here. All right.
3: Got it. Got it. Well, listen. I wish you. Um, uh, I, I pray God blesses your upcoming trip and blesses your work, and I appreciate everything you do. And uh, I'll keep tuning in.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, when I, when I mentioned the Hebrew word Tardemah, deep sleep, for, uh, for Jonah, it's the same, the same root is used, Dom for sleep, the root Radam. So I, I should have been more specific that it's the same picture of a deep sleep as God put Adam in a deep sleep. 866 truth your Jewish-related questions. Uh, Let's go to Joel in California. Hang on. Um, For some reason here, let's try again. Okay. For some reason, I am unable to put Joel on. So Howard or Kim, if you could bring Joel on, I'm just going to have to reboot on my screen here. Uh, Joel, welcome to the line of fire. How are you? All right. I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you.
4: Oh, good. Um, I'm doing a series, and it's titled um, "Should We Keep the Old Testament Covenant or the Old Covenant?" I guess is how I'd word it.
0: Okay. So I have a
4: question about Romans talking about the law. Um, I got a few verses to rattle off real quick. First Corinthians nine twenty one, Paul talks about being under the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. Galatians six two says fulfill the law of Christ. James mm-hmm. two twelve says we'll be judged by the law of liberty. Mm-hmm. So, my question is, in Romans, with all this talk about the law, I'm having a hard time finding the context of that word usage of law. Is Paul talking about the old covenant law, or is he talking about the universal laws of God in general, that we're not under them in the sense that when we live by the Spirit, we can uphold those?
0: yeah, we can so... walk
4: in them because if it's talking about old covenant then it, to me the context doesn't make sense because he says we, we do uphold the law. So it right. seems to be he's talking about the law of Christ and the universal laws of God.
0: Yeah, so the first thing is, Joel, that Paul's arguments in Romans have uh, mystified many a commentator over the year, over the decades, centuries, and there's great debate when he says namas, law, hanamas, the law, What's he speaking of? You know, in Romans seven, when he writes to men who know the law, does he mean Roman law, or does he mean Torah law? And then when he talks about the law of the spirit, or the law that brings condemnation, you know, what's he speaking of? So let's let's break things down, to simplify a, a few points. Okay, number one, let's talk about the Sinai covenant. All right, the Sinai covenant was given to Israel, and it brought condemnation on the nation why because of Israel's sin the Sinai covenant epitomized in the 10 commandments which were, which were written on stone rather written uh, rather than written on our hearts we are not under the Sinai covenant we we can universally and simply say that we are not under the Sinai covenant if we were we'd be putting sabbath breakers to death if if we were we'd be stoning disobedient rebellious rebellious unrepentant children right so we agree we're not under the Sinai Covenant. But what about the standards of the law? What, what about the righteousness of the law? And obviously that is what God writes on our hearts. So first in Romans 2, when Paul's talking about the law, then he's talking about the moral requirements of the Sinai Covenant. So someone boasts, hey, I'm a Jew, but they don't keep those requirements. And someone else is a Gentile, but they do. Who is more honoring to God in that case? Well, the, the Gentile. Then... When, when we get a little bit further into Paul's argument, Romans 3, when he says faith doesn't nullify the law, it upholds it. It upholds it because also within the Torah, so he's not speaking of the Sinai Covenant, but the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Torah also teaches justification by faith. So when we teach justification by faith, we're not nullifying it, we're upholding it. And when we say that the purpose of the Torah was to convict us of our guilt, we're not nullifying it, we're upholding it. That's part of its usage, but it also teaches us justification by faith. So you've got the Torah as a whole, the five books of Moses, and then within that, the Sinai covenant. As we go further into the sixth chapter, when Paul says we're not under the law, what he means is we're not under the law as a system of righteousness. We're not under the condemnation of the law, and we're not under the law as a tutor, Galatians three, as, as a pedagogue to lead us. the Messiah. But rather, Romans 7, the law is holy, just, and good. And now Romans 8, it is written on our hearts that having died with the Messiah, having received new life through him, we now fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. I think you'll find that consistent for Jewish and Gentile believers alike. We are not lawless, but rather the principles of the law written on our hearts. And rather than God doing away with the commandments, we now fulfill them, which is why in Ephesians 6, Paul quotes from the 10 commandments. So we're not under the 10 commandments the way Israel was, but now God puts those commandments in our hearts, which is why the New Testament can say, don't commit adultery as a command. And why Paul can quote from the 10 commandments uh, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and Ephesians 6, saying, children, honor your mother and father. Children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise that you, you'll live long, inherit the land, et cetera. So now Paul applies that to the believers uh, of any Christian family. Honor your parents, that's a commandment. So we have a, re- a different relationship now. We've been born again, our sins forgiven, now the Lord written on our hearts. It's not hanging over us in condemnation, but the righteous requirements of the law are now in us, and any true follower of Jesus is going to want to uphold those moral commandments. Does, does that help put things together a little bit for you?
4: Yeah, absolutely it does. Thank you. Appreciate
0: Excellent. it. Excellent. Yeah, I appreciate you raising the questions. And, and by the way, the the more books you read on it, the more complex it is. But then, was, was Paul trying to be that impossible to understand? So that's why I'm trying to reduce it. To the basics here that are consistent. And Joel, a little bit later in the show, I'm going to revisit Matthew 5 about how Jesus comes to fulfill, not to abolish. 866-34-TRUTH. Excellent questions today. Much appreciated.
1: Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Ah, those Hebrew words. It's where we get Hosanna from. Originally, Hosanna, oh, save. And then it becomes actually just a... A word of praise to God. Hosanna. Hosanna. Praise in the highest. But the word itself from the Hebrew, hoshiana. Please save. Oh, save. God save the king. Yeah. 866 Truth. Welcome to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter five. Famous words of Yeshua. Sermon on the Mount, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Notice, he doesn't just say the Torah. Don't think I came to abolish the Torah, but don't think I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen. I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraphs or just an ornamental crown shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. So let's break that down. First, he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So he is going to take everything in the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah prophets. That's a joint way of speaking of the what we call the Old Testament today. All right. He's going to take that and fulfill it, fill it up, bring it to its full meaning, complete what to, has to be completed. And, and until he's done that, as long as heaven and earth stand, these words will stand. So say the biblical calendar, for example, he fulfilled the meaning of Passover, dying for our sins as the Lamb of God, and then with Feast of Unleavened Bread brings us cleansing with first fruits. It's, that signifies his resurrection from the dead, and then Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, the outpouring of the Spirit. Those were the spring holy days on the calendar. Then the fall holy days, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, that will be fulfilled with his return and bringing cleansing to Israel and the harvest, the ingathering of the nations to Jerusalem. So some of it has been fulfilled. So we now celebrate the Passover with fuller meaning, celebrate these holy days with fuller meaning, either as Messianic Jews or Christians. We recognize the fuller meaning of them. And then the rest is yet to be fulfilled. So we pray for that fulfillment. He takes the sacrifices, the offerings, the priestly ministry, and he brings that to its full meaning by dying on the cross for our sins and becoming our great high priest and enlisting us as a spiritual priesthood. So this is how he brings things to their fullness. He doesn't abolish it. He brings it to its fullest meaning. So blood atonement is super important to us. It's not now obsolete. It's super important through the cross. In the same way, the moral commandments of the Torah, which some observed outwardly, and that's what he seems to be saying. There's an outward observance from some of these religious leaders. You're going to have to do better than that. He now takes the commandments and brings them to a deeper level and gives them spiritual application. And it's not just the word, but the heart, not just the deed, but the attitude takes it further. And there is some rabbinic literature in the centuries that follows some traditional Jewish literature that also emphasized the heart aspect, committing adultery in the heart and these things. But for many, it can be Christian, Jew, Muslim, doesn't matter who you are. It's very easy to observe things outwardly without the corresponding heart attitude or to say, hey, I love you while I actually hate you, to smile at you while I'm actually lusting after you, to be friendly to you when I'm actually out to hurt you. That's hypocrisy. And there was hypocrisy among religious leaders then as there is today in every religion. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to do better than that. What does he mean by the least of these commandments? He's, he's not saying every Torah command must be observed today in perpetuity. Obviously, many can't be. And, and that would violate what he was saying about bringing things to their fulfillment. Rather, he's now showing you. He's now saying these commandments. Watch what I do. Watch how I teach these. He's now giving us application in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, we could go on for hours on that passage, but just a little glimpse of how I would understand it. Volume four of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Volume four, we unpack this even more and answer the question, did Paul abolish the law? As well as the question, did Jesus abolish the law? Uh, Over to Long Island, James. Hey, James, where on Long Island are you? Valley Stream. Valley Stream, all right. Yeah, I I grew up in Island Park, not far from there, right next to Long Beach. Okay, I know where that's at, okay. Yeah, and then of course, preaching. Doing great. Preached in Valley Stream at Bethlehem Assembly of God many, many times for my dear friend, Pastor Steve. You
5: know Pastor Steve. You know Pastor
0: Steve. That's where I go to church. Yeah, Pastor Steve Malazzo was a student of mine when we were both young men at Christ for the Nations on Long Island. And he has been an incredible. So I knew him when he was the youth pastor at Valley Stream, then became the associate pastor, then the senior pastor. And God has wonderfully blessed the work under Pastor Steve, I have the utmost admiration for him. He is the real deal, and it's a good church yes, to be is. going to, man. Awesome. Well, thank you, yes, James. What's your, what's your question?
5: Okay, I'm doing a study. I mean, I started reading, uh, uh, listening to um, Dr. Reed, Ryan Reed, some of his uh, series on YouTube. Okay. And I'm doing a study on the, mystic, uh, the changing name in the genealogy of Jesus, and I came to find out that some of the names that are missing or changed is because of levirate marriage in Deuteronomy
0: twenty-five. Yeah, well, you can make an you can that. make an excellent you can make an excellent case for that. For for example, uh, so just to explain levirate marriage to those who aren't familiar with it, let's say uh, a man is married and he dies and he has no children. So his brother, if he was able, would then marry that widow, and then the first child that she would bear would be the brother's child in terms of his name, his inheritance, it wouldn't have the same name, but it would be his lineage. It would be considered as his son. So his memory wouldn't be blotted out from Israel. And then any children she had subsequently would, would have the lineage of the physical father. So yeah. Why is it that you have in, in, um, in Matthew versus Luke uh, different parenting or different reference for Zerubbabel, why is that? And the best answer, and you have the same problem when you go to the genealogies in the Old Testament. He's referenced two different ways. Why? Yes. Probably a, lever, a leveret marriage. So let, let's say that his his physical father, we we'll just come up with English names today, was, was a Padilla. man named... Jo- yeah, okay. Uh, so Padiah, and then the other choice would be... Salatio. Right, okay, so... So we use the, the, those names. So let's say his physical father was Padiah, but the name of the father through whom he's traced is, is, is the other name. That would make perfect sense. It may even happen with, with the, the father of Miriam, the father of Mary, at, at the end of Luke's, uh, in Luke's genealogy in the third chapter as well, at the beginning of that. It may happen. So yeah, the best way to explain why you have somebody who seems to have two different names for fathers is Leveret marriage. One gives you who his actual physical father was. The other gives you the name of the father through whom his name is traced, the deceased father. That's definitely the best way to understand some of those.
5: One one more question, Dr. Brown, before you go. Yeah. Now, I also, also, I'm I'm wrestling because I I, I see the word, the Hebrew word, Sadaka, H6666, and the word Sadak, H6663. Now, the H6666, which is Sadaka, seems to always use. For God, God's righteousness, God's peace, or, or it has no—that's what God is. But sadaka is what you become. You become righteous. So when he says that um, Mary was righteous, the word that would be used if he was in Hebrew instead of Greek would be sadaka. Now my question is in um, Isaiah seven, the son which we both believe is Jesus Christ, because some of my friends are Hebrew Israelite. We both believe in Jesus Christ. He's the they,
0: they, the he's associated with Sadaka eight six 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 six. Yeah, so so yeah, so so the, the references you're giving, of course, are references to a, a Strong's concordance reference. That so there's not a you, you don't need to those don't mean anything in particular. But Sadaka does means righteousness, or it can refer to righteous acts. Hence, Sadaka in Jewish tradition. Becomes the word for charity. Actually, a tzedek is righteousness, and sadik is a righteous person. So, a righteous person is called a a, tzaddik, a A and and you would have the the feminine equivalent of that. All right. Then you have tzedek, which is righteousness, or it can also re- refer to God's victorious acts. And then tzedakah, uh, which is uh, has to do with, with acts of, of righteousness or things associated with righteousness. And therefore, as I say, in Judaism, tzedakah becomes charity, an act of righteousness. So um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't press that any further than you're pressing it in terms of trying to associate one just with God and another with humans and things like that. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't press that argument. But I, I love the fact you're digging and studying here, man. And may God bring these uh, Hebrew Israelites To faith, They really need to know the love of Messiah and his grace. Thanks for calling. If you get to see Pastor Steve, uh, tell him I was boasting about him on the air today. All right, 866-34-TRUTH, boasting about God's work in my friend. Uh, Let's go to Clyde in New York. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Hello, Dr. Brown. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Thank you.
2: Awesome. Um, Was Adam a son of God? And if so, why so?
0: Yeah, he was a son of God in that he was God's creation. And Luke, the third chapter, refers to him as a son of God. So there, there are many different types of sons of, of God in, in the Bible. All right. So I guess you're getting out of your car there or something. But uh, yes, yeah, so a so, uh, son of God can be by creation. So God created him. And in that sense, he's Adam's father and creator. You know, the question, don't we all have one father? That's our creator. And Adam has no earthly parents. So, of course, he's a a son of God. And then the children of Israel can be called sons of God. The angelic beings, because they bear that, that, uh, that nature of spirit beings, can be called sons of God. And then there is the son of God, the king, by adoption, could be called the son of God when he would begin to reign as king, God would uniquely call him his son. So son of God has lots of different meanings in scripture.
2: Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown. Appreciate you
0: are, it. Yep. You're very welcome. 866 truth I thought there might've been a follow-up question to that, but there we go. Uh, let's go to Michael in California. Welcome to the line how of you, fire.
2: How you doing?
0: Doing great. Thanks, man
2: yeah um I was wanted to touch on the subject um, did Jesus fulfill the law and from my study I found that the law has has three major major demands there's some scripture behind it but it'll take a little bit of time but basically be as holy as God as loving as God and as and as perfect as God later on in, uh...
0: right, stay right there I, I brought you on right before a break my apologies. stay right there and, and let's continue on the other side I want to hear what you have to say Thanks Michael.
1: It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, yes.
0: It's thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Welcome to the broadcast. Let's go right back to Michael in California. Sorry for having to cut you off. So why not restate those three ways that you see the law breaking down?
2: Yes, the um the the law of God gives us three demands. And it's the uh the demand to be as holy as God. We see that in the first Peter one sixteen and also in uh, in Leviticus, and that we're to be as loving as God and Jesus. Brought that out over in uh, John, you know, and I think it's thirteen thirty-five. I hope I got that address right. And then it's be as perfect as God over in five forty-eight, when He says, you know, be as perfect as your as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so Jesus kept the law perfectly, fulfilled all the demands of the law by not sinning, and then fulfilled the penalty of the law on our behalf, so that sin wouldn't keep us separated from God when we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, and then Subsequent to that, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and according to Romans, causes us to be able to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law through walking in the Spirit. And so, since we're under a new covenant, the old covenant law, as far as the ceremonies and stuff like that, has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, him being the foreshadow, and then us fulfilling the the, the righteous requirements of the law morally through walking with the Holy spirit being empowered by the spirit.
0: Hey, listen, you just gave us about a 10 hour teaching in two minutes. That's wonderful. (laughs) I love, I I, I love, obviously you put a ton of time thinking about it, but I love the way you opened it up. I love the way you broke it down, what he did, what he paid for, what he empowers us to do. And that is the whole glory of the new covenant. Hey, great addition to my comments. Really helpful. Much appreciated. Thank you, Michael.
2: All right.
0: God bless. God bless. All right. I like that. I like that. 866-34-TRUTH. Great to chew on that. I love when you just keep looking at, I've done it for decades, looking at the word praying, thinking, looking, praying, thinking, hearing what others say, looking at it, having your views challenged. And then you try to articulate things in these days, soundbite them. As much as you can. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Steve in New York. Welcome to the line of fire.
6: Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you for the uh, great program last night. Wonderful teachings. We're very blessed by it.
0: Thank you so much.
6: Hey, a question on devotional reading in the Tanakh as it relates to the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, In the New Testament, many of us that have become Gentile believers have gotten very comfortable with those three roles, and especially how Yeshua himself taught their relationship to us. And when we then go back to understand the 66 book connectivity of the Bible, we're very quickly faced with Yudhe, um, Vavhe, and Elohim as the language representing the Lord in speech or deed. Um, so, a revolution to me was Romans 10 9. Of and ten ten of whoever confesses Jesus as Lord. I'm nearly three decades in the faith and yet I had never gotten past L small O R D until I had read the teaching on curios Septuagint. Is it first question is, is it theologically correct that when Paul wrote that, that he is saying to Jew and Gentile that that Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Yud Hey Vav of the Old Testament, um, and it's and speaking directly to his divinity, versus the lordship in our life, which of course is a given. First, can you can you give your thoughts yeah, on
0: that? Right. So, because if you're reading the Old Testament in Greek, the Septuagint, that almost seven thousand times where the the Hebrew Yud Hey Vav why. H-W-H, which we normally pronounce Yahweh. But that name occurs almost 7,000 times. In Greek, it's Kyrios, It's Lord instead. That's how it's read. So you're reading that, and now you're confessing him as Lord. Does that mean that you are consciously confessing him as Yahweh? Was that what Paul was saying? You could argue for that. There's certainly an argument you could make for it. But at the very least... It has to be a statement of divinity, not simply as you say, taking for granted submission to him. Because we don't we don't have multiple divine lords. We we don't have yeah. multiple lords that we serve. If it's one thing it was just an earthly master, right, and you call that one Lord, master, you know, just sir, right? Yes, sir, no, sir. You know, or in in, in England you can have you know Lord I think Mick Jagger is Lord Jagger, right? So I mean it's just right. an honorific title. But in terms of of, uh, of a being to whom we bow down and worship and adore and pray and confess that one as Lord yeah if it's not a du- if, if it's not a direct statement that you're confessing him as Yahweh it is certainly a clear statement that you're confessing him as divinity that to me ha- has to be sure yes
6: so here's the quick follow-up which would be that blessed me immensely as a believer and as I'm back reading, in Torah or the prophets, it's a great blessing to be able to, in devotions or in perhaps a study with a friend, to do an insertion of—and and, and Jesus said to Moses to, to understand the pre-incarnate Son's agreement with the Father, or perhaps his pre-incarnate presentation— is that devotionally sound? Well, the, the reason I ask that is obviously within the servant songs we have the Lord speaking to his servant or speaking of him. So it is Isaiah fifty three? We have the tetragramming several times. Um,
0: right. So so right. So the, an- so to the answer later, to answer right? the question, Steve. Yes. Yeah, so I would not say Jesus speaking, right? Because Jesus is we are now speaking of the unique union of God and man in the incarnation. But could I say the son, the son spoke, the the son said to Moses, uh, all right, you don't want to add or take away from scripture and scripture doesn't use that exact language, but we do find out subsequently that God speaking and God communicating in that intimate way, God being seen. It's the son who is doing that. So, I would not change the words, but I would understand the concept devotionally and see that as God condescends to meet with us and speak with us and and be seen or revealed, it is the Son, So I, I would understand that. I would read the words as they are, but I would understand who is playing what role as I read. So hopefully that's helpful. But again, appreciate the questions. And folks, great questions, great comments. Thanks so much for calling and asking and being part of the show. We we got a great listening and viewing audience, but we we already knew that. All right, let's go over to Andrew in Minnesota. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
6: Yeah, I just wanted to ask about uh, John 6.56. Okay. Um, It's one of more, I guess, um, uh, Jesus' more uh, provocative statements and um, phrases, you know, whoever you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, then I will abide in him and he and me. Yeah. Um 'cause it's like they I can't think of a more un Jewish statement. Oh yeah. And I was I was just um I have an idea on how that would actually or or what he's actually talking about. And maybe you already have a, a better idea. Um but I'm not sure
0: Yeah, so so here's the dynamic of John six. The crowds come to follow him because he has miraculously fed them. They're not following him because he's a miracle worker and they realize he's sent by God as much as his miracles fed my belly. So they, they travel over uh, to, to get to where he is, get in the boat, travel over to, to meet him. And he begins to teach. And they're thinking natural. He's talking spiritually. Oh, we're hungry. Give us some bread. I'm the bread of life. I came down from a yeah. Well, Moses, they got the manna. We we want the bread, so they're not getting it. So he keeps talking more spiritually, until you're either going to understand him spiritually or you're going to leave. One of the two. Yeah. That's why he keeps you- getting more extreme and saying you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which, by the way, when say Catholic Church, for example, teaches that that shows that literally. In communion, you're literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The fact is, he was not talking about his literal flesh and blood. Then they were not to bite and, and eat. It was all metaphor right from the start. But yeah. he then goes Doesn't on. Happen. Let me just take this slightly <laughs> further. He, he says, what are you going to do? In John six sixty two, what are you going to do when the Son of Man ascends to where he was before? It's the spirit of his life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. He's saying, well, look, when I'm not here physically, what are you going to do? And he's not just talking about instituting communion there, right? He's saying, if I'm right. how can you eat my flesh and drink my blood if I'm not here physically? You're not getting it. So I understand it, and well, tell you what, if you can do it in like 15 seconds, how do you understand sure. feeding on his flesh, well, drinking his it blood?
6: Just, it just seemed like such a perfect um, mirror of uh, what the temple priests. They were eating of the sacrifice. That's what their life was sustained from it. So he was completing that picture.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's certainly a very real image that they would eat the sacrificial uh, animals. That would be the the priest's portion. And then if you just want to make the spiritual application, sir, and I've got 10 seconds myself, what we do, we feed on his flesh. So what he's done for us in the sacrifice on the cross, who he is, we feed on that. We drink his blood, the forgiveness that he purchased. As we do that, he lives in us, we live in him. Hey, back with you tomorrow. Phones will be open. You've got questions, we've got answers. Visit us, askdrbrown.org. Take advantage of all the resources.